Well, we're going to start with a little Bible trivia. So we'll see uh, who the smart ones in the room are. Uh, and also, who is paying attention to what series we're starting today? So the question is, who is the shortest man in the Bible? Who said that? Yeah, Nehemiah. Well, that's a that is uh, that is one one contender. But there are actually that I've found anyway two others that are smaller, shorter than Nehemiah. Can, can you think? Bildad, exactly. Bildad the shoe height. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty short, right? But he's only the second shortest man in the Bible because clearly Peter had to be very short when he slept on his watch. I mean, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty short. That's pretty small. I'm excited that we're starting a new uh, a new series today from from Nehemiah, and uh, we're going to look at the first chapter. It's just 11 verses, but it really sets the tone for uh, what happens in the rest of the book. But first, we want to take a moment to give some historical background. Kind of like the book of Acts, Nehemiah is historical in nature. So, in other words, it's describing for us things that were happening in that day. Obviously, it's part of the inspired Word of God, so we can draw some timeless truths from it, but it's more descriptive than prescriptive. And so, as we did with Acts, we're going to take each you know, section and kind of see what happened and then try to find some principles that are exemplified there and cross-reference that to some New Testament more explicit uh, you know, uh, prescriptive passages that tell us what to do. Uh, but on this, our first week in this uh, new book, I want to take a moment to kind of set the tone in terms of the historical setting. So Ezra and Nehemiah are considered sister books, and for many years, believers actually regarded them as twin books. They were called First and Second Ezra, or in the Greek transliteration of the Old Testament titles, it was First and Second Esdras, so you'll see that sometimes. It wasn't until the 4th century A.D. that Jerome... One of the first, uh, one of the church fathers, uh, gave the second Ezra, second book there, the name Nehemiah. Uh, but the single story that these books tell begins in Ezra and ends with Nehemiah and covers about 110 years uh, in Israel's uh, history, and it deals with the remnant. That's the people in view. Some 97,000 Jews who returned from captivity uh, in in Babylon. So when we get to Nehemiah, the year is 445 B.C. The city of Jerusalem lay in shambles. Um, the walls were torn down. The city was unprotected. Even though the temple had been rebuilt, the people had no real sense of national direction. There was no leader you know, rising to the fore. There was no sense of pride. It was a pretty low point in Israel's history. They had returned. Yes, they were being released from exile, escaped as it were, not literally escaping. They had been given permission to come back. But they had no conscious national influence that arose uh, from their purpose as a nation. And they didn't have much messianic hope. You know, we talk a lot uh, from a conservative biblical dispensational perspective about the hope of Israel and the, the future kingdom on earth of Israel and the rebuilt temple when Christ will come back and reign in fulfillment of all of the prophecy, well, at this time, some 400 years or so, 450 years before Christ, there was no real messianic hope. In fact, there's no reference in either Ezra or Nehemiah or Esther, 
another book around that time, to the Messiah and the Messianic hope. Now, we do see Zechariah, one of the prophets, a contemporary of theirs, he certainly talks a lot about the future uh, Christ who's going to come and rule and reign the world. Um, but what was God doing at this time in the lives of his people, and what role does Nehemiah play? So the purpose of God was that his people should return to him. As they were returning to the land, they needed to return to him in their faithfulness to him and their following his word and obeying his commands. God was not finished with his chosen nation. He had a plan. It's a perfect, unconditional plan. Obviously, they had seen some rocky times going back to the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. Now Persia was the dominant uh, world empire at that time. But Nehemiah reminds us that God's plan cannot be thwarted, that God is a covenant-keeping God. And even though Israel had a, you know, evidenced stubbornness and made poor choices and rebelled against God, God was still in control, and he was working out his plan. And Nehemiah is going to play a key role in that process. Uh, the return to Jerusalem of God's people during Nehemiah's day, as you may know, was just the first of three uh, actually, the third of three separate pilgrimages back to the city. It started, it was a total of 97,000 Jews, as we said, but it started with Zerubbabel in 538 B.C., uh, and uh, that was about 50,000 that came back. And then there was a second smaller return under Ezra, and now in Nehemiah's day, we see another huge group, 42,000 Jews, coming back uh, to uh, Jerusalem. So during this time, returning to God meant returning to his law. The people needed to be reminded of God's ways and God's word and his law. They didn't have all the, the, the priests and, and prophets and the ceremonial uh, activities that they would have when they were in their land while they were in exile. Now that they're coming back, they needed to return to the, the word of God and respect uh, his law. So the book of Nehemiah tells the story of how God continues the task of reshaping his people that began under Ezra, uh, and this time his primary instrument uh, is Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the man of the hour. He was also an interesting man because he was just an ordinary guy, just an ordinary citizen like you or me. He was not a prophet. He was not a priest. He was not a king. He didn't, he didn't hold any particular position in the nation of Israel. He was a a, a cabinet-level member of the Persian ruler, uh, and he later became the governor of Judah. But in terms of God's people and his fellow kinsmen, he was just a regular a person. You know, generally the kings of Israel, if you look back at their history, had failed. There were some exceptions, some godly kings, but by and large they they failed. And you know, the uh, the the judges were corrupt. The priests were corrupt. The people had largely ignored the prophets, and there were plenty of false prophets in that day too, but even the, the prophets that God was using to try to wake Israel up, the people had mostly turned a deaf ear to them. So God chose not a prophet or a priest or a king, but a common man to help rebuild the wall around Jerusalem in a little over seven weeks or so, 52 days. Um, and that allowed the people then to concentrate their focus back on the Word of God, back on the temple, back on the reading of God's Word. And, and Nehemiah reminds us a lot of another man who lived and walked by faith 
and was a natural leader. As we're going to talk about in a moment, leadership is not a function of your position. It's a function of your influence. Everyone is a leader. doesn't matter what office you may hold or what title you may have. But another man, like Nehemiah, that was used in a similar way, who was also not a king or a prophet or a priest, was Joshua. If you remember Joshua leading the children of Israel, Nehemiah did for Israel in his day what Joshua had done in his day. But Nehemiah was a deep man of faith. And uh, this was a unique time in the history of the Jewish people. The Babylonian invasion was the first time that Jerusalem and its temple had been destroyed. And when approximately 70 years, as Jeremiah the prophet had said, had passed, then Cyrus the Persian issued a decree which gave the Jewish exiles the possibility of returning for the first time in decades back to their homeland. Following the first return uh, in 538 B.C. under Zerubbabel and the completion of the temple, two leaders emerged that take center stage that helped bring the people back to God, returning to God and respecting his word. Ezra the priest, and he's going to come up in the book of Nehemiah again, and, and Nehemiah himself, the, the, the administrator, as it were. Um, so the book of Nehemiah was written to really document God's provisions, both physical in terms of rebuilding the wall and getting the, the city fortified, and spiritual that God made in reestablishing his people. The need of the hour was both unity and leadership. It was a people adrift, a people without a sense of direction, a people without a national leader. They needed someone to rise up, rally the troops, and get them focused uh, on what they needed to do. As I think about an application for our day, I really see a dearth of leadership, uh, not only in our country, that's easy enough to see, but in the world at large. There's a crisis in leadership. We've completely redefined what the term even means. Uh, no longer does leadership have to do with principled decisions, integrity, morality, taking a principled stand. It's all about appeasement. It's about giving people what they want to hear. It's about likes on social media and the size of your audience. It's, we live in a day of pluralism where anything goes uh, to each his own. Leaders are uh, left with personal gain really as the only guiding influence in their day-to-day decision-making. I mean, just think about it. Look, look at the headlines. Look at all that we see every day. Look at Washington, D.C. I mean, we've, we've kind of fallen into this trap of the fake left-right paradigm. I've talked about that a lot, been exposing that for years and years and years, written two books about it. Um, so we tend to think, you know, the conservatives are the good guys, the liberals are the bad guys, and we hear <clears throat> some conservative or Republican, let's say, congressman or senator say something that resonates with us, and we go, yay. But really, are they actually principled leaders? If you really stop and look into the decisions they make and the votes that they cast, whatever happened to true, principled, biblical leadership? Globally, we've got World Health, World Health Organization, World Economic Forum, the UN. We've got dictators, tyrants, transhumanists, people that have an agenda, to be sure, but it's not a godly agenda. It's not a principled agenda. 
We seem to have lost our leaders today. That's why I called this the lost art of, of leadership. There's a, a fable, and one of Aesop's fables that kind of speaks to this issue of, of leadership. According to the earliest source, Phaedrus, the story is about a group of frogs who called upon the great god Zeus to send them a leader. We want a leader. So in the parable, or in the fable, Zeus threw down a log, which fell into the midst of the pond with a loud splash. It terrified these frogs. But eventually one of the frogs peeped above the water, and seeing that this log was no longer moving, it was just sitting there, like a log on a log, <laughs> Uh, soon all these frogs began to emerge from beneath the water and they began hopping up and down upon the log. They made fun of their new king. He was completely impotent. So then the frogs got bored with this leader. And so they sent a second request up to Zeus. So they said, we want a real king. And so Zeus gave them an alligator. And this alligator slowly started eating them in this fable one by one. Once more, the frogs appealed to Zeus, but this time it was too late. They must face the consequences of their request. I think that's the two extreme, extremes of leadership in our day. We've got spineless, unprincipled, do-nothing leaders that supposedly represent the conservatives, or if you think of in the Christian world, the evangelical leaders. But then you've got tyrant dictators who are just out to kill everybody on the other extreme. But leadership is about influence. Everyone is a leader. The reason there's a lack of leadership in our day is because people aren't doing what every one of us should be doing. Who are you influencing? Moms? Dads? Who, who are you influencing? Bosses, friends, young people, Are you influencing your friends at school. See, everyone is a leader in some way. They may not have a title. They may not get much world acclaim, acclaim, but leadership is about influence. And the question is, what kind of leader are you? Leadership is taken, not given. Leadership is exercised, not appointed. What kind of leader are you? Nehemiah serves, I think, as an example of a true biblical leader. And as we go through this first chapter, I think seven qualities of true leaders emerge. We're going to see these sort of parallel with some biblical principles elsewhere. Uh, but this is what jumps off the page at me as we see Nehemiah telling his story. For such a time as this, a man of the hour who influenced and changed the world. Uh, I'll start with Warren Wiersbe's quote. I love this. Warren Wiersbe said, When God wants to accomplish a work, He always prepares His workers and puts them in the right places at the right time. Now, keeping in mind my definition of leadership, which leadership is influence, have you ever stopped to think, am I in this place for a purpose? And I don't mean this room, the, the auditorium at Plum Creek Chapel. I mean, are you in this station in life, wherever God has you, with your circumstances and all that's going on at this moment in your journey, for a purpose? Are you in the right place at the right time? Is God trying to use you for some unique 
specific purpose in this situation at this time. Let's look at the example of, of Nehemiah. The first thing that, that jumps off the page at me about Nehemiah is he had a concern for others. That is so hard for us to get our hands around because we live in such an egocentric culture. It's the, the narcissism epidemic, as I talk about in, in my most recent book. Uh, it's hard for us to, to really have truly heartfelt concern for other people. But watch how he begins. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev. Chislev corresponds to our no, late November, early December. So late November, early December, in the 20th year, he's talking about the 20th year of the reign of the Persian king Artaxerxes, that would be 445, 444 B.C. Of course, remember, we count down in the B.C. Uh, calendar. So we're talking winter of 445, 444 B.C. As I was in Shushan, Shushan was the winter capital of the Persian ruler Artaxerxes, and uh, Nehemiah served in his administration, or was a helper, he was a cupbearer, as we're going to find out. And so he's in Shushan, and it says, at that time, Hanani, one of my brothers. Hanani is a shortened name of the Hebrew name Hananiah, meaning the Lord has been gracious. Nehemiah's name in Hebrew means the Lord has comforted, which is exactly how God's going to use Nehemiah to kind of give direction and purpose and comfort the people of Israel as they came out of exile. So here's his brother, Hanani. We believe it probably was his actual brother. Can't be dogmatic about that because Hanani was a pretty common name in Hebrew, but we do know that Nehemiah had a brother named Hanani. So his brother comes with some other men from Judah. And listen to what Nehemiah does. He takes the initiative and he says, And I asked them concerning the Jew, the Jews who had escaped and who, who had survived the captivity. And I asked them concerning Jerusalem. In other words, he took the initiative. He asked. How often do you ask others, how are you doing? Now, let's be honest. We all fall victim to that surface level, sort of artificial, meaningless small talk when we say, hey, how you doing? Or, hey, great weather today. Or, man, we've got a lot of rain lately. Yeah, but we need it. You know, that kind of, those, those kind of conversations, right? Man, how about those nuggets, right? By the way, how about those nuggets? Uh, and that's not superficial. That's like, yeah, they're doing well. Um, but that's the kind of conversation that we you know, that we, we tend to have. That's not what Nehemiah is doing here. He asked them, hey, you know, I, I get to live here and, and serve in the Persian court. What's going on with my kindred back in Jerusalem? How are things going? What's it like? He took the initiative. How often do you look someone in the eye and say, how are you really doing? And it's more than just a passing superficial conversation. It's no, I really want to know. I mean, there's a time for superficial conversation, right? It's just the paradigm and sort of the, the, uh, the way we, we function. You know, you don't, you're, you're going through the line at King Supers and the clerk says, um, how you doing? Well, at that moment, she's probably not intending for you to go, well, 
to be honest with you, I'm, I'm pretty depressed, and I'm having issues with my mother, and I, uh, I miss my mother, or I, I love my mother, and I wish she loved me, and I wish I had a better childhood. I mean, I don't think that's what she's intending. It's just sort of a convention. You know, you say, how you doing? And then you go, I'm doing well, and you? And that's kind of the extent of it. That's not what a leader does. A leader actually has a genuine, from the heart, concern for others that says, hey, I really want to know. How's it going? And we see, when it comes to the New Testament church, this sort of admonition that we're to edify one another, that we're to do things that build one another up, that we're to impart grace to the hearers, that you know, grace is not only that which saves us, but it's that which sustains us, and, and, and it gives us that undeserved ability. And so what you say to others can make a huge difference. Hey, how are you doing? No, I mean, really, how are you doing? What's going on in your world? In the parallel uh, letter that Paul wrote also from uh, house arrest there in Rome, he says in Colossians 3, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, again, with grace. With grace. How's your concern for others? That's a key quality of leadership because it looks outward and not inward. And, and leadership is about what? Influence. It's not about what's best for you. It's about what's best for others. How can I influence others? The second thing we see, not only concern for others, but a compassion for the hurting. A compassion for the hurting. Because let's see how they answered that heartfelt question. They said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down. And its gates are burned with fire. This was a, a source of shame for God's people who, you know, were, you know took rightful pride in being God's chosen people and giving glory to Yahweh and representing Yahweh in their best times. And now they looked around and things were in shambles. But notice what happens next. Nehemiah says, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. And I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. His reaction to this bad news leads him to, to pray. That was his first reaction. We're going to see that uh, in a moment. We're going to see his prayer. But it was, it was heartfelt empathy to the point of weeping. When's the last time you were so concerned about someone that you took the time to ask them and then you were actually moved with compassion by the response? This is the first of 12 references to prayer in the book, uh, and we're going to see prayer as a key role of, of a leader. Um, Daniel was another high-ranking Jewish official in the Persian government, and he was also a man of prayer. Of the 406 verses in Nehemiah in our English translation, 46 of them are prayers. That's about 11%. Just think what amazing difference we could have in this world as influencers. I don't mean social media influencers, I mean influencers for the Lord. If we spent 10 or 11% of our time praying, Prayer is a key, a key concept, but, 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 you know, Nehemiah exhibited not just concern, but compassion. 
And again, the New Testament reminds us that all of us are to have that kind of compassion for one another. We're to love as brothers, to be tender-hearted, to be courteous. Nehemiah was really patterning the response that Jesus would later have after he comes to the earth in the form of a, human, of a man, a born of a virgin. When, when he saw the fields that were wide unto harvest, and he said, you know, the Bible says he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Are you compassionate toward others? It starts with concern, actually caring enough to ask, followed by compassion when you are confronted with a need. But as we read on, we find that Nehemiah also had a correct perspective on life. He knew who God was and he knew who he was. And perspective always comes down to that issue. There is a God, you are not him. Do you understand and view God for who he is and do you understand who you are? If you can keep those things in balance, you can be an amazing leader, an amazing have an amazing influence in this world. Uh, so how does Nehemiah pray? He says, I pray, O Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. He begins his prayer with praise for who God is, his greatness, his loyal love, his faithfulness uh, to people. You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. So Nehemiah's greatness, the reason he's immortalized in the word of God and the reason we look up to him as an example his greatness came from asking great things of a great God and attempting great things in reliance upon a great God. That's who, that's who Nehemiah was. Uh, he had the right perspective. He understood that there are things that you cannot do apart from God. Uh, it's a matter of walking by faith. You know, as I was driving up this morning listening to some songs and, and, and thinking about Nehemiah, I just was convicted of, of how unlike him I am in so many ways because I get so easily distracted by the stresses and anxieties of life. You know, we've been dealing with some stuff this week, even just little things, you know, family things and just stresses of life, nothing major, but just, but, but little things become big things to me. You know, I just can't get them out of my mind and I just, I get frustrated and I, I want things to, I want something to be fixed, you know, and that's not a faith type perspective. That's a looking at world through human eyes. That's Paul said we, we are to walk by faith, not by sight. We're saved by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ one time for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's that moment in time when we become a born-again believer. Nothing can undo that, by the way. You, know, you don't get saved by believing and believing and continuing to believe and hanging on to the very end, and then hopefully you, you make it across the finish line. That's not the testimony of Scripture at all. Jesus said, the moment you believe in me, you pass from death to life and shall never come into judgment. It's a one-time moment in time when faith meets the gospel, the result is eternal life. If you're a Christian today, you'll be a Christian tomorrow. Nothing can ever change that. Praise the Lord. But the same way you're saved by faith is the same way you walk, you live. We're justified by faith before a holy God and declared righteous, but we're sanctified. We grow closer to the Lord by faith as well. That's really what the Christian life comes down to, and that's really what we see exemplified in Nehemiah, his perspective. You know, he, he understood things on earth through the lens of who God is and what God wants to do and what God's plan. And as, as we're going to see in his prayer, he, he knows the Scripture and he reminds God of his promises and those types of things. But how's your perspective? Maybe you're 
not able to be as compassionate to others because you're living by sight. Everything's about what you can see and feel and touch and hear. But the Bible calls us to walk by faith. Paul said, we've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, meaning the physical realm, the flesh and blood, I really live by faith in the Son of God. What is faith? Well, the Bible defines faith for us in the book of Hebrews. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith, by definition, is seeing the invisible. If you can see it, it doesn't take faith. right? And so Paul gives us this contrast here of how we should walk by faith and not by sight. And by the way, later on in the same letter, uh, which if you remember, he wrote on his second missionary journey, uh, just before he, he got to Jerusalem. He, he later on in chapter 13 of this letter, he says that you should examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith, lest you be disqualified. Now, almost every Bible teacher and Bible commentary out there gets that passage wrong. Most people, it's 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Most people say, Paul is saying there, look at your life and how you're behaving and make sure you're really a Christian. That's not at all what he's saying there. It completely ignores the context of his argument in the book of 2 Corinthians. He's telling the believers in Corinth and us by extension to live your lives by faith. So therefore it follows that you should examine your life and see if at this moment are you walking by faith. At this moment, are you in the faith? Are you living your life by faith? See, nowhere does the Bible ever tell Christians that you should examine your behavior to see if you're really going to heaven. Never. In fact, that's an offense to Jesus who died to pay the penalty for your sins and promised you the present possession of eternal life. It's like Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. John 6, 47, or John 10, 28, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. And yet now we're saying, well, I know you promised me eternal life, but let me check out my behavior. Let me see how I'm doing and see if I measure up and make sure that that's really true, Lord. I just don't believe you really meant it. No, no, no. You never determine the assurance of your salvation based upon your behavior. And that's not at all what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Contextually, he's saying you need to be living by faith. Are you? <laughs> because if you're not, he goes on to say, you might be disqualified at the bema in terms of rewards, and you might face the discipline of God and the loss of rewards and so forth. And even he himself was concerned that if he's not going to live out a godly life based on faith, then, then he's going to lose some rewards. He wasn't worried about hell. Paul, more than anyone, knew he was a believer. He said, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. So don't let anyone tell you that when you come to 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. It's saying, make sure you're really a Christian. We're never called to doubt our salvation. Our promise and hope is secure the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ. But we are supposed to walk by faith. We're supposed to have this correct perspective on life that Nehemiah exemplified. As Paul said, we're to seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Now, let me ask you, as you look heavenward, how many of you have ever physically seen Christ sitting on a throne of, of physicality? No. We can't see that. It's in the heavenly realm. Someday we'll see it when he comes back and takes the earthly throne. 
But when Paul says, set your mind on things above, he's saying, walk by faith. Don't set your mind on what you can see. Set your mind on what you cannot see. Because that will help keep things in perspective. So when Nehemiah was confronted with a deep personal need that affected his family and his friends, his first instinct was to go to the unseen realm, to walk by faith, not by sight, to have the right perspective. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven for believers in the present church age, and that's where we eagerly wait for the Savior. So our, we should set our minds on things above. Nehemiah had the correct perspective on life, and that's what makes him such a great leader. So he had a concern for others, compassion for the hurting, a correct perspective on life, and then in the verse we just read, we notice he had a real confidence in God's promises. He wasn't a doubter. He said, you who keep your covenant. So Nehemiah, interestingly, and we see this a lot, by the way, we see this in the Psalms, we see this in other prayers, is reminding God of his promises. Now, why would he do that? Did God forget? <laughs> Did God need to be reminded? Of course not. But it's a way of bolstering our faith. When's the last time in your prayer you reminded God, now, Lord, I know you're a faithful God. You know, I find myself saying that a lot. I think I've picked up on it just from studying the Psalms and things, and it's just a way of both tacitly admitting my own insecurities while at the same time trying to bolster my faith. And I'll say, now, Lord, we know you're a covenant-keeping God. You've probably heard me say that before. And I think that's what Nehemiah was doing here. I'm nowhere near the leader Nehemiah was, but it's just a reminder that uh, God is a God who keeps his word. And, you know, Nehemiah had confidence in God's promises. He knew that God had promised his people that he would restore them to their land one day. In fact, the word remember, which we're going to see again coming up here in his prayer, a couple verses, that's a key word in Nehemiah. I forget how many times it's used, but it comes up again and again. Remember, remember. Remember. See, confidence in God's promises requires us to constantly remind ourselves of those promises so that they're instinctive when we face difficulty. As I said, we see this in the Psalms a lot. The anonymous psalmist here said, Concerning your testimonies, your word, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. He said, Every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. King David said in Psalm 36, your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Just a poetic way of saying there's no end to God's faithfulness. You can take his promises to the bank. David also in Psalm 34 said, blessed is the man who trusts in him. You know why we're blessed? Not because, you know, like there's this huge bucket of blessings and if we're placing our faith in the Lord, he's going to tip them over from the heavens and they're going to pour out on us. I mean, to be sure, God, our blessings overflow. We count our many blessings, right? But I think the blessing here comes from walking by faith and not by sight. Because if you're, if you're allowing the things of earth and the anxieties and stresses and trials and difficulties of life, which when you think about it, are so tiny in the big picture. If you're allowing those to obscure and block your view of God, then you're missing out on the, the intimate blessing of, of being closely in fellowship with the Lord. But if you look past all of the fog and haze of the stresses of this world and keep your eyes fixed on the Lord, taste and see that the Lord is good, then 
you can really face God's blessings. So Nehemiah had a confidence in God's promise. And then in the next couple of verses, we see a really impressive action that he takes. And that is he takes ownership of the problems of the Jewish people in his day, and he confesses his sin. Now let's talk about confession for a moment. Confession in the New Testament is a biblical word. It's a compound word in Greek, homo lageo. Homo is the prefix. Homo means same. Lageo is the Greek verb, I think. So it means I think the same, or to think the same way, to agree with, or to say the same thing as. So confession of sin means to agree with God that what you've done is wrong. To have the same perspective about our sin as God does. There's that agreement. And notice what Nehemiah does. He exemplifies that. In his prayer, he says, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which... We have sinned against you. And then he reiterates it just to make it abundantly clear. Both my father's house and I, Nehemiah, have sinned. And this is a repeated uh, characteristic of true leaders. They don't pass the buck. They don't cast blame. They take the blame. Ezra did it. Daniel did it. Uh, Nehemiah acknowledged that the Jewish people had been guilty of sinning against God, and he was in that camp. They disobeyed the Mosaic law. You know, you know it would have been totally different, and this is the way most secular leaders today or fleshly leaders in the Christian world respond. Lord, pray for my brothers who's sinning. You know, help them to repent. Help them to, you know, see the error of their way, you know. We don't, we don't, we seldom include ourselves and recognize, you know what? We're all sinners saved by grace. Daniel goes on, we, again, first person plural, have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you have commanded your servant Moses. See, Daniel, even though he was in a different proximity, he was still in the same boat. After all these decades since being carted off in the last exile, he had gotten away from the, the word of God and the commands of God. He had probably not kept the law like he should. He had not gone through with the, the normal sacrifices and things that they were supposed to do when everything was operating uh, and functioning in the, in the land of Israel. This wasn't just a fake humility. This was a real humility. This was him confessing, you know what, Lord, the reason that we're facing this problem is because we've departed from you. That was, by the way, the reason they got carted off into exile in the first place. Disobedience. God wants, over and over again, God uses the enemies of Israel as instruments of his discipline to try to course correct uh, his people. Uh, but as we find out in the New Testament, and even the Old Testament prophets said multiple times, you know, they were stiff-necked, they were hard of hearing, they just wouldn't listen, hearing they wouldn't understand. So ultimately, God... In the greatest act of grace of all, sent His eternal Son and our Savior to the earth to be the once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future. And ultimately, He's going to come back to establish His kingdom. I mentioned Daniel. Here's Daniel's prayer. Notice the similarities between Daniel and Nehemiah, both great leaders. 
O Lord, great and awesome God, same way Nehemiah started, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him. Again, reminding God of his promises. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled by departing from your precepts and judgment. Confession of sin. When's the last time you simply were honest with God and said, you know what, there's some things that I have done wrong. Number six, another example of Nehemiah's leadership is he had a real understanding of Scripture, a comprehension of Scripture. So concern for others, compassion for the hurting, correct prospect on life, perspective on life. He had a confidence in God's promise. He was willing to confess his sin, but he, he comprehended the Scriptures. He goes, remember, I pray, one of those examples of remembering, remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses. And then he's going to quote the Scripture. When's the last time you quoted scripture in your prayer? See, that's so critical because, number one, it keeps it fresh. Number two, it shows that we've hidden the word of God in our hearts. We've studied the scripture, that we're not trying to navigate life apart from God's blueprint. And so he quotes scripture. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. This is just the, 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 the promise of God going all the way back to Abrahamic covenant. To this day, it still hasn't been fulfilled because Israel hasn't responded nationally in faith and believed in the Lord for who he is. They've, individuals have. There's always a remnant Paul, of course, was one of them, and he talks about others, Jews, that were you know, like-minded in the early days of the church. Uh, but the nation hasn't responded, but someday they will, and then this will come to final fulfillment when they are regathered, as Jesus said, at his second coming from the farthest parts of the earth. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. He understood the Scripture. Later on, as we go through Nehemiah, we're going to find that after the wall is complete, they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they, this is Ezra, the priest, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. There was a centrality of the scriptures. Are the scriptures central in your life? It's going to be tough to be a biblical true leader, one who has a positive Christ-like influence on others apart from saturating yourself with the Word of God. Nehemiah knew the Word. The, the, the Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And that was certainly true for Nehemiah. And finally, the last verse of chapter 1, we see Nehemiah not shying away from confrontation. He was willing to confront wrongdoing. Notice what he says, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name, and let your servant prosper this day. How? What was he asking for specifically? He says, I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. End of the prayer. And then he says, as kind of a footnote, for I was the king's cupbearer. Who is he talking about? He's saying, Lord, I've was moved with compassion, that was born out of my concern, my genuine heartfelt concern. My first instinct was to pray, and now I know what I have to do. I have to march into Artaxerxes' office, this impressive, powerful world leader, and I have to plead the case for my people. 
Nehemiah's prayer is kind of bookended with two ver very telling phrases. Starts out with awesome, you know, powerful God or almighty God. And then it ends with this man. And I think that's intentional. Uh, he's showing the huge difference between, you know, his reverence for God and his perspective on this matter, and no less than the king of Persia. In the eyes of the world, Artaxerxes was an important person, a man of power and great influence who could decide life and death. But in the eyes of Nehemiah, understanding who God is, Artaxerxes was just a man like any other. See, it's the Lord God Almighty that makes the decisions not Artaxerxes. In fact, uh, Proverbs 21 tells us that explicitly, this principle that we see Nehemiah implicitly relying on here. Remember, most of the Proverbs were written around 1000 BC, give or take 900 to 1000. This is 400 years later. Undoubtedly, this proverb had already been well circulated among the Jewish people. Nehemiah understood the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Are you in a place, in a season, in a station in life where you really need some important decision to go your way? Remember, whoever that is, just a man, just a woman, right? God is the one who makes the decision. And he's bigger than whatever that decision is. And whatever way it goes, he's still in control. Reminds me of the anonymous psalmist in Psalm 94 who says, Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. In other words, my words are meaningless. I need to depend on the Lord. And, and Nehemiah knew what he had to do, and it was not, he was not intimidated in the least to go into Artaxerxes. Now, we understand, you know, he had a relationship with Artaxerxes, as I said, and he goes on to say he was the king's cupbearer. The cupbearer, as we know, was one who in those days would serve the wine, but also taste it in front of the king to make sure that it wasn't poisonous. But it was way beyond that. It was more uh, of a dependency. There was a closeness. That he was a confidant. He had the, the king's ear, so to speak. So we get all that. But so often when we find ourselves with access, uh, you know, to important people, we tend to shy away, shrink away, and, and have this, you know, be starstruck, right? Nehemiah was willing to just walk right in and ask the tough question, as we're going to continue reading about next time. He was willing to, to say, hey, my people are in distress. You can do something about it. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I, you know, I, I experienced that in my ministry with Not My Works. I have the opportunity to cross paths with a lot of pretty impressive people that I look up to, that I've read their books and I've listened to them forever. And at our conference in Orlando, my family kidded me a bit because there were so many like A-listers there that I just, you know, I did a complete faux pas for speakers at conferences. I went up to a couple of them and said, can we get a selfie? I want a picture of me and you standing by each other, which was totally uncool, but I don't care. I just, I, I was impressed by them, and I was wowed by them. Now, if I had the leadership skills of a Nehemiah, 
I would have walked up to, you know, Billy Crone or L.A. Marzulli or whoever and said, hey, you know, come here, I'm going to critique your message and you made a mistake here and you missed this, you know. Hey, you know, you're not, I'm not easily impressed, right? But Nehemiah was willing to confront when it was called for. So Nehemiah had a concern for others, compassion for the hurting, a correct perspective on life, confidence in God's promises, confessed his sin, he comprehended the scripture, and he was willing to confront. Chuck Swindoll sort of summarized Nehemiah's effective leadership this way. He said, Nehemiah had a clear recognition of the need. He was personally concerned with the need. He went to God first with that need, and then he was available to meet the need. I think that's a good, that's a good summary. What kind of leader are you? Leadership is influence. Why does God have you where you are right now? Who can you step out, step up, and lead? When things look bleak, here's the takeaway. Step out and lead. You know, we've been conditioned to think, you know, call 911, call the repairman, call the this, call that. Now, there's a time for that, obviously. But what can you do? Seize every opportunity to influence others positively. Always lead based on principle, not opinion or expected reaction. Never forget that your leadership could very well change the world for somebody the way it changed the world for God's people through Nehemiah. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this just great example, encouraging and uplifting and really motivating example that we see in uh, Nehemiah, I pray that you would raise up believers today, especially in these troubling times, that are willing to stand alone, uh, not trying to take the pulse of, of the situation, but just reacting based on the right perspective, based on what you would have us to do, doing what's right. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that today has a particular burden and need, that you would bring someone into their life that can be a Nehemiah for them and just really encourage them and lift them up. And of course, we pray if there's anyone that doesn't know you today through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that today, in, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit in simple childlike faith, they would trust in Jesus Christ, who alone can save them. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.